Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are talking with Max Wilbert, who is a friend and also a third-generation dissident who grew up in Seattle's post-WTO anti-globalization and undoing racism movement. He has been an organizer for more than 15 years. Max is a longtime member of Deep Green Resistance and serves on the board of a small grassroots nonprofit. He holds a bachelor's degree in environmental communication and advocacy from Huxley College. His first book, a collection of pro-feminist and environmental essays written over a six-year period, was released in 2018, and he is the co-author of the forthcoming book, Bright Green Lies, which looks at the problems with mainstream so-called solutions to the climate crisis. Thanks for joining us, Max. It's great to be here, Vince. Yeah, Thanks it's for having me. good to talk to you again. Let's. Um, there's going to be some folks who hear this who've maybe never, well, probably for sure have never heard of your work. Uh, give them a sense of sort of where you grew up, where you're located now, and, and sort of how that feeds into your activism and, and writing that you do today. Sure thing. So I grew up in Seattle, in the heart of Seattle, in uh, a, a, a community that when I was growing up was the most diverse zip code in the country. And so there were a lot of people from all across, mostly like Horn of Africa, Somalia, Ethiopia, a lot of immigrants, a lot of Vietnamese folks, a lot of like African-American people who've been in this country for generations. And then, you know, some white, white communities, some Jewish communities. So there's, I grew up in this neighborhood and it's rapidly gentrified since I was a kid. But growing up, I sort of was always having that contrast of seeing what was going on in the neighborhood around me and contrasting it with, you know, the other things that I would see in my life, you know, the contrast between just probably a mile northeast of where I grew up, you get the neighborhood of Mount Baker in Seattle, which is one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the entire city. These multi-million dollar houses going along the lakeshore of Lake Washington there. And, you know, and then on the other side of the lake, you've got Bill Gates's mansions. You've got all the Microsoft people. Oh, I mean, right. Seattle. That's right. Seattle is a city of contrast for sure. You've got this extreme wealth that's been driven mainly by the technology industry. But you know, then going back, you also have this long history in Seattle of resistance, like the first general strike in U.S. history, I think, in uh, nineteen sixteen, maybe or nineteen, was held 19. in Seattle. Yeah. You've got, yeah, you've got a, a long history of wobblies and radical labor organizing. You know, there's, there's a, of course, there's such a rich, deep history in every place. But, you know, I kind of grew up getting some of that because my parents have some background in organizing and in, you know, being involved to some degree in different movements. Like my dad was into film and was always, uh, doing film for, you know, anti-apartheid struggles when that stuff was happening out here and was involved in uh, like the Grey Panthers, which was, you know, an organization of older folks, you know, agitating and organizing for their rights and for, you know, for justice and for dignity, you know. And, uh, you know, my mom was marching in the civil rights marches when she was a kid. She grew up in Seattle. I actually went to the same high school my mom did and many other people in my family. And uh, my grandfather was a conscientious objector in World War II. So he sort of brought this anti-war criticism of imperialism and sort of a deep 
humanism to the family, which has sort of infused the family. And my mom's side is the West Coast side. So that's mostly the family that I grew up around. And so I grew up, you know, like you said in the bio, I grew up sort of in the shadows of WTO. It was 99 when that happened. And I was, I don't know, 11 or something. And uh, so I, I wasn't part of the protest really, but my, my dad and my sister went out to some of the protests and I may have gone to some of them. I don't really remember some of the early ones. We went to protests, you know, now and then when I was growing up. But then, you know, but over the next few years after that, I got involved in this undoing racism community in Seattle as a very young person, you know, and uh, with other youth in a youth organization. And there was this really rich ferment of uh, anti-capitalist and uh, critique of globalization. And, you know, we had my sister's boyfriend at the time was from Southern Mexico and was all about the Zapatistas and studying what they were about. And another guy that was part of the crew was part Brazilian and was all into capoeira and the history of, you know, African resistance to slavery in Brazil. And, you know, and then there was this white, one white anarchist guy who was just all about, you know, critique of capitalism and then different people bringing in different elements, you know? So I, I, I was really lucky to be exposed to that at a, at a very young age, you know? And so that kind of just put me on a path, I guess, from a, a, a tender age, you know, I just felt like I'm here to do work. I don't really want to mess around. You know, I went through plenty of periods when I was in high school and college of partying and, you know, just doing, doing whatever. But, uh, I kind of always felt like I was here for some bigger purpose. So since then I've been organizing, you know, and spent a lot of time, I think like most people wandering politically in the wilderness, not really knowing what groups to be a part of, not really feeling connected or drawn to any different thing, kind of, uh, you know, picking and choosing different pieces from different political traditions and saying, okay, this makes sense. A lot of the anti-capitalist stuff from the Marxists and this makes sense. A lot of the structure stuff from the anarchists and I love this stuff from the feminist movement and this stuff from the anti-racist movement. And, uh, and it's probably about 10 years ago now that I first saw Derek Jensen speak up in Bellingham. A friend of me, uh, a friend of mine took me out to a talk that he gave. And that was sort of a moment for me that brought together this revolutionary energy that I had since I was pretty young, you know, in terms of learning about the Zapatistas and learning about the violence really embedded in capitalism, structural violence in this society. Uh, bringing that together with environmentalism, which came to mean a lot to me, you know, by the time I was a teenager, I grew up spending a lot of time camping. I was really lucky to do that. I was going to ask uh, you that. Yeah. I was going to ask that. Yeah. Part. Yeah. I grew up, I was really lucky for that. You know, I grew up spending time camping and my family would always go out to uh, the coast of Washington state uh, Olympic national park. And this is the longest undeveloped stretch of coastline left in the entire U.S., the lower 48 states. And it's only about 40 miles long. So, you know, you think the entire East Coast, the entire Gulf Coast, the entire West Coast, you've got one section 40 miles long. That's the longest undeveloped stretch. And the thing is, it's only about half a mile to a mile wide from beach to 
where the clear cuts like how start. Deep it is. I got you. Right. Uh, so, you know, this is national park strip and it's, it's amazing out there. Like I love it out there. It's my favorite place in the world. And so I really grew up contrasting what I saw in the city in terms of the, the brutality of capitalism and homeless people out on the streets and people getting addicted to drugs and gang violence going on and police violence going on. And, you know, everything that goes on in a city, the pollution, the concrete, and then going out to this beautiful place. I won't say it hasn't been impacted because everywhere has, but going out to this place and sitting with my family around a campfire and reflecting on the fact that families have been sitting around campfires on that very beach for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you know, and that I think taught me sort of implicitly that we don't need to live in the city. We don't need all these things that so many people look at as necessities of life that so many people, just because they haven't experienced the alternative, you know? And the other thing about that was my family would do these camping trips. We still do it every summer. We go out there. It's like our pilgrimage. We talk about it as like our church every year. Like we're going out to worship and like to, to reconnect and like to get away from all the bullshit of this society we live in. Uh, but we would bring other guests out, you know, so I'd bring a friend maybe, or we'd bring a cousin or we'd bring, you know, a family friend or somebody. And so a lot of these people didn't really have any camping experience, you know, and I won't say that we were experts. Like when we started going out there, you know, we're all just wearing jeans and carrying bags of grocery bags of whatever, you know, <laughs> over the years you kind of work out like, okay, this piece of gear is better than that. And I probably shouldn't wear cotton because if it rains all week, I'm going to be screwed. Uh, but we're bringing these other people out. And so I got the experience again and again and again. I've seen these people come out and they're afraid of the dirt. You know, they don't want to get wet. They don't know how to take care of themselves. They don't know how to go to the bathroom in the woods. They're afraid of the bugs, you know. Uh, they want to shower with soap. Uh, and we have to kind of like bring these people into this world and we're you know, these are good friends and family that we're bringing out and kids often. So we're trying to do this in like a really loving and supportive way as a family. And I got to give a lot of credit to my parents and my family for, for doing that over the years and just for instilling in me a real value for nature and for the natural world and for like the ability to have a great life with very little, you know? I mean, from when I was young, my parents really impressed that on me that you know, success and happiness isn't about wealth or money or anything like that. It's, you know, obviously you need the basics, you need food and shelter and clothing and whatever. But beyond that, like all you really need to be happy is some friends, some family, and like a nice place to hang out and stay warm, you know? And, and we're doing this on the beach every year. So that experience has had such a profound impact on me from my entire life going forward from there, you know, and, and I think that's, I mean, the land can be such a huge teacher and I really look at that place as a huge teacher. I was just reflecting the other day on this one particular tree, this old growth Sitka spruce tree that we hike by, you know, just as we're hiking down to the, to the coast there. And it's, it's probably hundreds of years old. It's a huge tree. And 
I was just reflecting on the fact that like that tree has seen me every summer since I was a child, you know, hike out there and has seen me grow up and has seen me start, you know, seen the cast of characters start to change and has seen me meet my current partner and start bringing her out there. And like, that's a, that's an eye blink to that tree. And that tree saw the entire process of colonization carry be occur. You know, that tree saw indigenous people, Macaw people just like hiking out there, living their lives you know, and carrying their supplies back 300 years ago, 400 years ago, going from village to village or going out to one of the prairies to go hunting or gathering or whatever, and then saw the first settlers come, probably saw the first disease waves come out through that area. And so, you know, I've, I've, I've been really lucky to have that connection to place in that sense. Yeah, it sounds like a very deep connection. I mean, one of the things I was going to ask, we can circle back. I was going to ask you about this sort of, because I struggle with the difference between city culture and then some of the rural culture that I've encountered. And so I think mm-hmm. one of the the challenge, actually, let me stick with this thought of like being deeply rooted and then deep thinking. I was going to ask you, like, you're thinking about these things in a very deep, reflective way that even speaking with the amount of people, and this is no offense to uh, previous guests uh, for the program, but it seems to me like there's something about, I mean, I get this sense when I talk with Jer- uh, with Derek, with some other folks that I know, um, there seems to be sort of a presence about yourself that's like, you're not necessarily wrapped up in like this day-to-day thing. And I think part mm-hmm. of like, I'm just speaking for myself and and I, I was hoping for this to be also conversational as well. So I'm not going to jump in too often, but there are things that I would just like to talk to you about because talking with you is going to also help me and Sergio and everybody else yeah. that's listening, but it's going to help me work through stuff as well. Like that's how I hope mm-hmm. to, to see some of these conversations. Yeah, um, it seems like being in a city, being wrapped up, especially doing community organizing, that like mm. it's this day to day like boom this is going on this is happening there was a decision at the municipal level there was a decision at the state house there was a decision you know at in washington dc there's a pandemic there's a war there's this there's that it's like i think even really thoughtful reflective people all of us have the ability to do so but i think others some probably do it better than others. I think sometimes you just get so wrapped up in this like day to the day to day material challenges of living in this system mm. that the ability to get out and deeply connect with a space, which, you know, neoliberalism makes that totally difficult because people are being pushed out of their homes left and right, especially in the city setting where it's like rapidly being gentrified. Though I also know that rural areas are being developed quite quickly with you know, vacation homes and suburban mm-hmm. enclaves. But yeah, I'm just wondering where you think that sense of like deep thought, obviously geographically being rooted in a, in a place, um, mm-hmm. but then also just that ability to do really deeper thinking, writing, reflecting. I know you spend a significant amount of time, or maybe not significant, but I know you spend a good amount of time in nature Um, because I see your photographs that you post, which are all, which are, you know, gorgeous, gorgeous photos. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering where you think that comes from, where you're able to sort of generate that kind of spirit of deep thinking and deep reflection. And if Mm -hmm. there's any kind of like 
practices or disciplinary sort of like, like how do you keep yourself disciplined enough to continue that sort of deep thinking and deep thought? I mean, well, one thing I would say is, you know, I don't think I'm immune to any of the bullshit that, right. that all of us are dealing with. Like, you know, on a day-to-day basis, like I'm caught up in that whirlwind of life and the whirlwind of like bills and stress and drama and, you know, the latest shit that we're dealing with just like everybody else. So I certainly would not say I'm like some sort of monk or something <laughs> who's got, you know, all kinds Damn of shit. It, you've destroyed, out, you know? you've destroyed but, my vision of you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, for my, for myself, for my, for my own perspective on it, like I just get crazy when I don't spend time in nature. Like if I, I mean, when I really feel it the most is when I've been outside for multiple days without being on a screen, without being, you know, near a phone, without being in self-service. Like that's when I really feel the most human and the most like I'm authentically myself. I'm a human being. Like I'm just, I'm an animal here living in this body, you know, and I feel that the most honestly like if I if I do a three day trip into the backcountry, I don't really feel it that much. But when it's four days, like that, you drive you know drive in or hike in the first day, and then the second day is your first full day out there. Like that third day when you've been out there all day yesterday, and you're starting your second full day outside. I don't know what it is, but just a lot of the bullshit falls away. You know, I mean. And I, I can't say that the things don't matter because we all have to deal with these realities of living in this society and the stresses and, you know, we need to tackle like these day-to-day things that we're dealing with both in our personal lives and as organizers. But, you know, I know for me that if I don't do that periodically, I just start to get kind of psychotic, really. And, you know, there's some uh, there's some thinker, I forget who it was, who talks about you know, we have this idea that a city is like chaotic and we're overwhelmed by uh, all the messages. And I think that's really true in some ways, but this person was saying in some ways the opposite is actually true as well, because if you're in a city, like every single thing is mediated by human beings, right? right? You know, even the trees and the park and the grasses and the natural things you see around you were planted by people and are like maintained by a sprinkler system, you know? Right. And every message you see and read and person and building and everything is made by and for humans. And when you're out in the natural world, that dissolves, right? Like that. And I think that it's sort of like a sense of um, self-centeredness that starts to go away. And I think that's why some people are afraid of going out in the world, because if you're not used to that, it's kind of scary to be in a place where it's like, Oh, nature doesn't really give a damn about me, you know, like by and large, you know, um, you know, a tree might just fall or bug might bite me, or, you know, I might drink some bad water and get sick or whatever, like bad things can happen. I mean, a lot of bad things happen in the city and do all the time, but like people are familiar with those dangers. Right. And we're comfortable with what we're familiar with. And, you know, I spend time guiding people and spending time with folks outdoors and, people will like be terrified of a bear or a rattlesnake or something like that. And it's like, you know, black bear is not 
looking to eat you, you know, they're mostly herbivores and they're just kind of going to go about their own business. Like I saw one last summer, we're just hiking and go around a corner and there's this beautiful berry patch and there's a bear just munching on berries right there, not far away. And Oh, Jesus. I, see, just, I would have been scared was, shitless. I would have been No, it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, this. the thing is, like Vince, like this bear is just having the time of his life. He's right. just like got all the berries he can eat and like option one is like, stay here in this berry patch and keep eating all this free food that doesn't fight back and that tastes great. Or option two, like chase down these large humans who are very dangerous, who are pretty much as big as me, who, you know, may have weapons, like people hunt bears. So bears are generally pretty afraid of people around here. And the bear, you know, looks at us for a second and is like, oh, they're not really threatened, just goes back to munching, you know? And I, I guess the point I'm just trying to make is like, when people and same with rattlesnakes like people have this idea that rattlesnakes are like out to get you you know mm-hmm. but like a rattlesnake will only bite you if it's terrified and it's trying to defend itself right you know if if they're not scared like they're not it takes energy for them to create their venom and like it's you know they're not you're not it's not like a rattlesnake's trying to eat you is that so a lot of like going people- to attack you defensively is that a lot of like people just not paying attention to what the hell they're doing when they're out in nature just kind of like you know how like it's true that in some parts of the city you might want to pay attention more than you would other parts of the city just that's just like straight street smarts for people but is that kind of the same thing in nature where like people are scared of rattlesnakes but like could that be largely because people just go tromping through the woods and they're like or through the desert or wherever they are and they're just like hey it's just like being in the street i kind of control everything and this is like my area and next yeah. thing you know like you're not paying attention to where you're walking or where you're going like is it yeah. a lot of that yeah i mean i think it's just respect like i mean it's same like i grew up in a rough neighborhood you know and you have you have to like keep your wits around you and like you don't Right. You know, you make certain decisions and, but it's not like you walk around terrified all the time. Right. You just like know what's relatively more dangerous and what's relatively less dangerous. And you make informed choices based on that, you know? And I think it's the same with living in nature, being out in nature. Like you just have to make informed choices, but it's, you know, it's like the same if you threw me into like a rough neighborhood in Karachi, you know, I'd be terrified because I don't know what the hell's going on, you know? Right. And same if you threw me like up in polar bear country or something like that. I'm like, I'm going to shit my pants because I don't know how to defend myself. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where it's safe. I don't know what time of day the bears, you know, I don't know anything. Right. And, but, you know, I think that one of the most important things that somebody taught me, that Derek actually taught me years ago about connecting with the natural world is just, the importance of listening and the importance of it's just like in any relationship, you know, if you want to figure out how to live with a human being in a good way, like you go to visit their house or whatever, and you just kind of like watch what they do and you watch their routines and you kind of figure out how they like to do things. And then you figure out how you can kind of like slide in with them with, with the, the least disruption to their daily life. And then maybe you can have a good time and hang out there, you know? Right. And I think it's the same with the natural world. Like, but people aren't used to doing that. I think partly because most people, like we're not really taught how to have good relationships in this culture between humans. It's sort of, uh, 
I don't, you know, you know what I mean? Like the culture rewards drama and the culture encourages people to fight and to have sort of antagonistic, highly transactional, right. And comp competition and right. all this shit. And, and that can't really fly in, in nature. Like, and that's why you get these stupid TV shows like bear grills where he's like, now I'm going to go jump off this waterfall and, you know, try and hunt down a snake with this knife. It's like, and then he'll say, like, if you're in an actual survival situation, don't do this. But now I'm going to do it because it makes good TV, you know. And it's just like, well, that's the American way right there. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I contrast that with, um, like, I was down in the Philippines recently doing a little organizing work there. And I, we, were in the city, we were in Manila for a while. Huge city, like 13 million people. Super crowded. Lots of air pollution extreme wealth inequality, like total slums, and then, you know, fancy high-rise apartments and giant shopping malls. But we, we leave the city and we go out to the rural community out in the province a couple hours, hours away and stay in this little uh, village where, you know, people are just farming. You know, there's electricity, people have, you know, TVs and it's not like a total off-grid type situation but it's very rustic compared to this country you know and um and i got invited to go out with these two little boys who are like 12 maybe and so we wait until night it's getting dark and we go down to the uh river the little creek there and they take us uh they take us uh, spearfishing for these little shrimp that live in the creek. And you go at night because you can bring a flashlight and you can kind of spot the reflections in their eyes. And so we're hunting some of these shrimp and, and we pass like a big frog that's on the side of the creek. And they tell me, they don't have much English, but they tell me to say tabi tabi po to this frog. And what that means is that's basically like something you would say to your elder. To like if if like your great grandmother's there, you know, and you want to convey like love and the utmost respect, you say like tabi tabi po, and that's what they say to the that's what they said to the frog like these young boys, you know, and they said that to this giant old tree that we walked by too on our way down to the river, and that was really interesting to me because it's just. Like, I don't think connecting with nature is some great, huge mystery. I think it's just like connecting to humans or just like connecting to a dog, you know, if people have pets. Like, you you show respect and you show care and you take time and you listen and you be humble and, you know, and then a lot will come of that. And I think when you listen to the land like that, like, I'll sometimes go out if I'm having a really rough time, you know, I'll go outside and I'll go find a tree or I'll go find a, I'll go sit in a meadow or somewhere by a river and I'll just like talk out loud and I'll just be like, here's what's going on with me. Here's what's, here's what's stressing me out right now. Here's the situation I'm trying to deal with. And I'll just kind of open myself up to like whatever the world is trying to teach me. And I think when I say that, a lot of people might think like, this is some weird woo woo shit. But like the, the, the answers that I get in those situations aren't like a disembodied voice that floats out of the tree. Like Max, here's what you should do. No, the answers that I get are often like, well, 
you know, you're feeling really unstable. How does a forest respond to like a landslide, some situation or something like that? You know, like I get these answers that are more about how the natural world and beings in the natural world respond to these situations. And, you know, there's a lot of things about like patience and steadfastness and just keep growing and just keep on fighting, you know, and that like, I get messages like that. Those are some of the ones I've been getting recently. Like I'll get, you know, I'll have hard times like anybody else and ask a tree or something. And the tree will just be like, you, you just got to keep growing. And then the tree, I'm looking at the tree and I'm thinking about like, this tree isn't an individual. This tree is part of a forest, you know, like we can't ride out these storms that we're seeing in our world politically as individuals any more than one tree is, you know, is a forest, you know, and that's, these trees support each other. Their, their roots interlock. They exchange nutrients and information about insect pests and stuff, you know, through the mycelial networks under the forest floor. Like they survive in community and in, by supporting one another. And they go through shit together. Like they don't just, you know, it's not just like easy times, like fires, fires rip through there. You have clear cut logging, you have insects attacking them. You have windstorms coming through and knocking trees over you've got like serious shit goes down all the time in the natural world and so i think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn if we have that humble humble approach you know yeah no i it makes me think a lot about um yeah the hyper individuality that we've created in this culture i mean also there's like two views. It seems to me like you're, you're sort of finding some kind of balance between the two in, in terms of, and tell me if I'm wrong. There seems to be two dominant views when people talk about the natural world. Either one, it's this majestic, wonderful place that's maybe fetishized in a weird way where like there's not really a genuine connection or respect for it, but it's just yeah. this like, we go out hiking and kayaking and it's just beautiful. And yeah. it's like, those are the people I hear about that will get eaten by a bear, bear or something. <laughs> um, but then on the other end, there's this view, you know, there's an, an, the view that I think I was raised in coming from the Southeast side of Chicago, what you were saying earlier about all these people you bring to the, mm -hmm. to the woods. Like that's me. I mean, Sergio is probably going to laugh, totally. but it's like, that is totally me. Like I theoretically, and I ideally in my mind, I'm like, these things are beautiful. We have to save these things. Like it's, you know, I know, I understand conceptually like what is going on, but mm -hmm. then when I'm actually there, because I've spent so much time in the city, I'm just like, oh shit, like, what is that? Or what is this? Like my friends who are mm -hmm. from those areas laugh the whole time. They're just like, oh, Vince, like, you'll be fine, man. Like you can touch mm -hmm. this thing or you can not, don't go there or do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So much of that is, I think comes from like where you definitely where you come from, but then those two different views, I guess was the point I wanted to get to was like, you seem to be living somewhere between the two of those where you appreciate the beauty and the sort of majestic nature of this highly complex natural world that we live in, but also with a tremendous amount of respect and understanding that like in nature, like your ass can end up dead real quick. So you yeah. better know what time it is. You better have some respect, some humility. Is that correct? Yeah. Like that there's, it's something in between yeah. those two things. Yeah. And I mean, part of it for me too, is I, 
Well, two different two different points, I guess. So I I grew up spending a lot of time rock climbing. I was really into rock climbing for a while when I was in uh, high school and early twenties, and to to a point which was unhealthy. Like you know, you you see these people who are addicted to certain things or who are just so fixated on a certain sport or activity of some sort that they're just kind of like, I don't know. It's not. I was, I was really, that was what I wanted to do with my life was to climb. Oh, no shit. Yeah. I was about to drop out of high school and just, uh, go on, you know, be a bum living on the road and climb all the time and dumpster dive for my food. And my parents talked me out a bit. Um, but, uh, or, you know, blackmailed (laughs) me out of it in some way. (laughs) Uh, but you know, one thing that I, I, I still climb occasionally, you know, not a ton, but uh, one thing I got out of that whole experience was I think it's more of a sense of my own mortality because I had several near-death experiences and learned that lesson that, you know, it, when you're up on a cliff face or on a mountain, it doesn't really care about, you know, the the only thing that matters is whether or not you can successfully do what you need to do to to get up and down safely, right? Like there's no, there's no margin for error. There's no like, uh, somebody's going to explain it to you or excuse your mistake. It's like either it goes horribly wrong or it doesn't, you know, that's, that's the only thing. And so I remember this one time I was probably like 17, 16, maybe. And I, was up in the North Cascades in Washington state. And I took a terrible fall. I fell like 20 feet onto my back in the snow. And I won't get into the story, but I was, I ended up being pretty much fine. I was had some scrapes and bruises and stuff, but I could have like, if I had fallen a few feet to the other side, I would have hit this big stump and broken my back and probably died. And uh, I remember later that day, looking out across the mountains and looking into the North Cascades and just imagining like the molten rock masses that congealed into these incredible mountains. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the North Cascades, but people call it the American Alps. You know, it's a, it's a stunning region. And, uh, you know, I was just so happy to be alive at that moment. And so I learned a lot of respect for my own limits uh, for mortality, for, um, the things that can happen that can go wrong when you're out there. But the other thing that, that you made me think of there was, um, Vine Deloria Jr. Do you know him? No. He's, he, he passed away now, but he was a indigenous author. He wrote a bunch of books. Uh, I think he taught at, uh, University of Colorado Boulder or Colorado University of Boulder. And he, uh, he wrote like God is red Custer died for your sins. He was kind of a big figure in like the aim, the aim, you know, movement in the seventies and maybe back into the sixties, even, I don't really know the exact timeline, but he wrote a lot of great books. And in one of his interviews, he talks about how he was teaching all these college students who went to Colorado to go to school. And so many of them went there because they love to hike. They want to go outside. They want to go up in the mountains. They want to snowboard or whatever. Right. And he talked about how these kids weren't really having a nature experience. They were having an aesthetic experience of nature. 
And I thought this was so fascinating because he was contrasting that with an indigenous experience, you know, in his, in his heritage where when you're out on the land, you're there for food, for medicine, for water, for shelter, for clothing, for, you know, all the necessities of life and your spirituality, your whole culture is like woven into that land and that whole experience. And he was contrasting that to the, these college kids just going out into nature for an aesthetic experience, just to look at things basically. And I think that's extremely prevalent nowadays. And you see that a lot in the environmental movement too. You know, you see like there's this whole philosophy in the outdoor world called leave no trace. I don't know if you've heard of this, but you know, they teach it to you when you go into a national park or you go backpacking or whatever. And they tell you like, leave no trace. And it's, you know, basic stuff like pick up your trash and, you know, don't cut down bushes and trees and, you know, don't tromp across a flower meadow and trample everything. Like a lot of it's just common sense stuff. But the whole idea, like that concept only emerges from a society that is profoundly disconnected from nature and that also sort of coming from a different angle is so overpopulated and out of balance with nature that like, that's the only way you can do it. You know what I mean? Like if you, a lot of these national parks get millions of visitors every year. And if you have a million people going through or 10 million people going through Mount Rainier national park, you can't do anything there sustainably besides walk on, a trail and you know but the thing is like the indigenous communities of these areas they were engaged in real relationship with the land and you know our ancestors too like we we're not just talking about indigenous people here in the u.s like my mom's side came from norway my dad's side came from ukraine like they were they were farmers you know you go back further than that like these people are getting all their food all their medicine all their clothing, like everything is coming from the land around them in an intimate relationship to the point where like, if you live in a place, you know, all the plants who live there, you know, all the water sources, you know, what's over that mountain and what's over the next mountain. And you know, the whole watershed and, and that's just normal, right? Like it's not even worth commenting on. It's sort of like if you live in a city now and you just know the you know the street layout, you know where the stores are, you know where the gas stations are at. And we don't really like talk about those things or have formal classes in them. You just pick them up as part of life, you know? Right. And so I think that, I think we all have an incredible capacity to learn these things. And, you know, I, I'm still learning a lot. You know, I, I mean, if you compared my knowledge to, uh, my, my ancestors in their indigenous territories, you know, back on the European continent, like my knowledge is minuscule compared to, I'm sure what they had. Cause I still, you know, I go to the grocery store, I'm on my computer, I'm whatever, you know? Uh, but I've, I've tried to make an effort over the years to develop those relationships with the land where I live. And it's been a slow process. It takes years to do that. But a lot of it just starts with, you know, go out on the land and just be out there. And then 
I just sort of have followed what, um, where my enjoyment and where what's going on takes me, you know, learning a little bit of medicinal plants and learning edible plants and mushroom harvesting and getting into some hunting and fishing and, um, I think this is really important. You know, I was talking to, you know, Sock Edge Ward. He was at Earth yeah. at Risk too. Yeah. yeah. So he's a Micmac guy and he's been involved in their warrior societies. And he talks a lot about the importance of developing these land-based skills, not just for, you know, spiritual fulfillment or, you know, personal satisfaction or anything like that. But he talks about it too, in terms of gaining independence from the capitalist system. Because right now, all of our food, our medicine, our clothing, all this stuff is delivered to us by these global supply chains through systems that are, you know, completely reliant on fossil fuels, sweatshop labor, you know, exploitation of workers, just human rights abuses and ecocide up and down the whole line, right? And as we've seen with coronavirus, like these systems are fragile as well in so many ways. Extremely fragile. Right. And so the more independence we can gain from those systems, the more we can, um, the more easily we can resist, not just as individuals, but as communities, you know? And I think that's why you look at the history of, for example, African-American resistance in this country and, and black resistance. And you see this big emphasis on developing an independent economic base. Right. And, um, it was John Mohawk, an indigenous guy, said, there is no sovereignty without food sovereignty. And I think that those things are incredibly true and incredibly important in that if we want to have revolutionary change, but we are not preparing and building systems to be self-sufficient or to provide for our communities based on the land around us, then we don't really have any basis to build that on you know what i mean like i'm thinking about the the paris commune and the fact that they could just cut off supplies from outside the city and and you know how long is that going to last or something like chaz or chop in seattle it's sort of like okay there's some really beautiful egalitarian ideas behind this but like every single piece of food and bit of water and everything that's coming into this area is completely dependent on a broader capitalist system and i'm not trying to say like that's wrong and decry them and say that you know you can only do things in a perfect way if you make all your shit yourself sure but just practically like if we want to take things to the next level i think we need to uh move away from being consumers and move towards being producers or creators you know do you see that tied with like so immediately i'm thinking of my i mean i probably come more from that left tradition though not deeply steeped in the marxism but still more from that like communist socialist tradition um do you see there being so when i think of when i think of people being producers i think of it in the way that you're saying it so i would just had we serge and i just did this interesting interview uh with uh michael hart who's a a Mm left-wing philosopher out of duke university and he we're talking about like these different, really trying to combine all of the things that we've been trying to do here, but then also like adding different layers. So it's like on the one end, if there is meaningful reforms, reforms that could even potentially change power relations, 
that's maybe something good to work on. There's things to do outside of the system. I particularly like some of what like groups like Cooperation Jackson are doing, where they're doing their own farming, like they're doing different cooperatives, things like this. But I, on the other end, it's like, then you have like this revolutionary strain on the left. That's like, you know, I agree and and really support workers, unions, workplace organizing, shutting things down, strikes, sabotage, all these kinds of things. Um, But those are more tactics And what Mm. I guess I'm getting at is like, there seems to be a way to kind of mesh some of these different strains of the left or some of these different revolutionary approaches. So on the one end, I'm hearing you say, let's produce things outside of the system. And I totally agree with that. On the other end, I'm thinking to myself, there's probably a ton of people in highly mechanized urban areas that maybe couldn't see that right away. But if we own the means of production... And I don't mean to sound too dogmatic here, but it's like if we actually, yeah, but like take over these systems and be like, hey, wait a minute, like let's now decide. I mean, there's another, the more skeptical side of me is like how much education, how much popular, I guess the question would be how much popular education would you need prior to building movements strong enough to do so that then when those movements were to take power or were to take away power, but own the means of production that they wouldn't just say, Hey, like let's produce a ton of these things for everybody in the world to have. And let's travel to space and let's like find ways to uh, colonize Mars. And I mean, I heard some crazy shit the other day. People were trying to take minerals from the moon. They're talking about like going to the moon and starting to mine the moon. All of this shit comes out of like sci-fi movies. Like all these sci-fi writers were like decades ahead of their time. But in any case, it's like when I hear that kind of shit, I just go, okay, my concern with the traditional left movements from the Marxist tradition has always been, it seems to me that a lot of what we're talking about is simply taking over the means of production and just kind of like moving things around a little bit. Like we're not like everybody can't fly everywhere all the time, but we're still going to have thousands of flights every day, but we're just going to have high speed rail. And if you feel like going to Paris tomorrow, then fuck it. You could go to Paris. Um, I, there's this weird thing going on where like, actually we engaged in it and on a, on a social media thread. I was, I'm always interested in this. Like there has to be some give and take between like, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but it makes me think of so much. Sergio and I were even talking about like personal responsibility versus like collective responsibility. It's like, there's a balance between those two things. Like you, yes, you need collective responsibility, but, but Creating that collective responsibility takes individual accountability and discipline. Mm. It seems yeah. to me that the same with political movements where on the one side, I, I think I understand where our friend is coming from when he's saying like working people, poor people are constantly being asked to sacrifice. And that's true. So when you're telling mm. someone who's extremely poor in an urban environment, and we know this because we're organizing with these folks like, hey, you're going to have to, we don't hit them with like, hey, you're going to have to sacrifice a lot to make this happen. Like, right. that's not how we initiate the conversation. But at some point, there has to be a conversation about like, hey, like, some of the things that we've grown very comfortable with, these creature comforts that like we know are, I know there's certain things I like to do that destroy the world. Like I know that for sure. Like I know yeah. that some of my favorite of hobbies are like, 
I like to get tattooed, but then I think about the tattooing industry. I'm like, where are the machines coming from? Who produces the machines? Hey, they can Who, do that. They can do that old school. Yeah, yeah. No, they could do the old yeah. school style. Yeah, that's maybe a bad example. I like concerts. I really love like live, yeah. big ass concerts. Every time yeah. I'm at a concert, I look around and I'm like, okay, like where yeah. does this shit come from? How much, how many of these materials? Like, and I like going to big shows. I like this band tool and they have like a huge like production, almost like a Pink Floyd style production. And it's yeah, of course yeah. aesthetically amazing, but at the same time I leave and I'm like looking at 25 tractor trailer semis that are parked outside of the United Center in Chicago, traveling to 52 yeah. different cities over the next three months. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. You know, it's like, no, that's something I know for sure in my lifetime that one way or another, either we take this thing over and we start making decisions collectively and people decide like, we can't do that all the time, or it's just going to end anyway, because there's not going to be the resources to sustain this kind of bullshit. Like, I know I'm like getting it through my head every time I do stuff like this. Hey Vince, this might be one of the last times you get to do this especially now in the midst of this pandemic, it's like, there's a whole bunch of things that like immediately got through my head, like this, 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 and this, like you better switch whatever your desires are. You better start changing and, and sort of adapting to the situation. And anyway, that's sort of going all over the place, but I just was thinking about like, yeah, thinking about what you're saying, thinking about, you know, the amount of sacrifice that I think all of us will have to make some more than others. And I think you've made this point. I've heard you made it in the past. Um, or make it in the past. And that is, there's actually a lot more poor communities around the world who will adapt much better to this than someone living in a middle-class neighborhood in Berlin or a middle-class yeah. neighborhood in New York City. Uh, the people who live in those areas are going to have a tremendous, I mean, it seems like a very difficult time uh, dealing with any kind of rapid shifts to the their way of life. I mean, Vandana Shiva makes the same point with subsistence farmers in, um, in India. You know, where she's like, yeah. look, like a lot of these people might not be doing this today, but if indeed people were thrown off of this economy, yes, there would be tremendous amount of death and destruction. But the people who would disproportionately make it out on the other end in a decent way would be people who have that that connection, you know, not generations of people who've grown up on grocery stores, which, you know, I was just talking yeah. to my mom about this the other day. And it's like, I, whenever she complains about something, I'm like, think about Grandma Amelia, which is a like great grandmother who lived to be 102 mm. years old. I don't know if we talked about this on your show, but or on your program, but you know, I think of Grandma Amelia, and it's like she valued things in a. I mean, just the difference between her and say my parents' generation, and mm. everybody knows I love my parents, but I would say this to them in person anyway. But like that whole like. 1947 to 1980 generation like holy shit I mean they just it was like like my great-grandmother grew I mean her backyard in Chicago had as much living things in it that you could stack on top of a like one-tenth of an acre area and then like hanging yeah. plants and these things and like mm -hmm. she made her own wine in the basement she made her own pasta her own bread every single fucking thing she would even knit stuff still you know, she's like mm -hmm. for her to go buy new socks because there were a hole in her socks were like unfucking fathomable. She would look at my dad and just be like, you become too American, you know, she would say to him. Mm -hmm. But it's like that just how quickly that changes, you know, I like from yeah. one generation to the next, just valuing, just valuing things like she would yeah. hold on to shit. I mean, I see us doing it more. 
you know, where we hold on to stuff now, you know, where it's like, Hey, I'm going to hold on to this table for like 30 years. Like I'm not getting rid of this until I can't have this table anymore. Whereas there was like a whole period where I feel like people were raised, man, it was just like toss it. Like it's a disposable culture. You get what you want, you use it up and then it's gone. And so I guess one of the things, Oh, go ahead. Good. Well, that's the, that's the influence of cheap energy. You know, I mean, like you go back to 1900 and the average person in the U S is spending something like 25% of their income on clothing. And it's not because they got a huge wardrobe full of clothing. It's because they got like three, three shirts that are handmade. They've got like one nice jacket. They've got maybe two pair of pants and probably one pair of shoes. And that, that represents a shit ton of labor that people have put into, you know, grow sheep, harvest the wool, process it into, into, you know, into thread and then put together clothing out of that, you know, and we live in this culture where we're just so used to everything coming to us. I mean, it's really like if you took people from any of the past thousands of generations, you know, and brought them to right now, they would think it was magic. They would be like, what the, they would not, you know, cause it doesn't make sense. Like we, we, you know, we, these things just appear for us, but of course, you know, they come from factories and the energy to produce them basically comes from fossil fuels, which have exploded, you know, the consumption of fossil fuels since especially the end of world war II has just exploded so dramatically that, you know, we, we don't think twice about going to get a, a new pair of socks or whatever, you know, and, you know, I mean, some of this is always tempered by poverty because the poor are always in a survival situation, you know, and I, I didn't grow up completely poor, but I grew up poor enough that, you know, I grew up with the ethic that, you know, if my shirt gets a hole in it, that doesn't mean you throw it out. That just means it's a wear around the shirt wear around the house shirt, you know, for until the holes are so big that it's basically all holes and then you get rid of it, you know? And I think a lot of poor people have the ethic, the personal ethic, you know, for survival reasons. But the thing is like the, the propaganda has been so incessant in this culture around consumption and status symbols that, you know, whenever people, and I include myself in this, get any bit of wealth, then they tend to put, put that right back into material goods and possessions and status symbols, you know? And that's, I mean, you talk about the advertising industry and the public relations industry and the success that they have had. I mean, it's the amount of money that's spent on ads yearly. It's like trillions of dollars and they're not wasting that money. You know, I remember when I, I was really lucky lucky and I grew up with my dad, like I mentioned earlier, was in film and he actually taught, uh, taught at a community college for a little while. And so we had like media critique materials laying around the house, you know, like gerrymanders for arguments for the elimination of television or, um, uh, you know, Noam Chomsky's work and Howard Zinn's work and, um, you know, a bunch of the critical media theorists. And, uh, so I understood from a young age, that advertising was trying to manipulate me. I remember when I was in high school and I realized that, oh, it doesn't matter if you know it's trying to manipulate you. It still works. It still works, you know? (laughs) And 
I remember when that hit me, I was like, holy shit, they're not wasting their money advertising to me, you know? Right. I mean, some obviously some products there just because my values or whatever are so different. But the it doesn't matter whether you understand how the advertising process works, it still influences you. I mean, that's the, I think one of the fundamental rules of propaganda and you look at, uh, you know, the Nazis and their propaganda machine and then you look at how... Um, how inept and crude that is compared to the propaganda machine we live under now. That's so complex, you know, with the interrelationship between the social media platforms and the mass media companies who are often, you know, linked through ownership groups. And you look at, you know, the, the apps and the advertising and all the tracking via the phones and everything. And man, it just like, everything is commodified these days, you know, uh, rebellion is commodified, resistance is commodified, you know, all these different aspects of the society are commodified. I mean, I think about like the, uh, the far right uh, militia groups and all their stuff, you know, I've been getting advertisements for body armor lately, <laughs> probably because they're reading me post about, you know, all the violence and shit that's going on and they need this to organize and they're analyzing that and they're saying this guy might need some body armor right. you know like the right wing and the rise of this sort of like tactical movement after 9-11 and the rise of the ar-15 and all this stuff has driven the growth of this like multi-billion dollar industry and these corporations in that industry are making a hell of a lot of money off providing all these products to people and it's just another example of how in a society where economic growth is the de facto highest good and is cannot be questioned and is structurally built into society that everything else will be seconded to that main goal. Uh, you know, ethics, morality, uh, making deliberate decisions about the direction you want your society to go in, those things become completely out of the picture and completely irrelevant to this sort of natural capitalistic, not natural, but this capitalist process that has its own momentum, you know, like these systems that we're living in, you know, obviously the rich and the ruling class have a lot of control. They have a ton of control, but also I think these things have their own momentum in so many ways. And, you know, rich people come and rich people go and, and, the systems continue to accelerate in their own ways. And I don't know, we're in, we're in for a rough time in the, in the near future. And I think a lot of people are really starting to realize that more than ever with the coronavirus crisis. But, you know, my, we've been saying this for years, my friend Saba, you know, I remember talking to her years ago, she's Pakistani, but she grew up in uh, England. And she said, you know, you, you want to look at, what collapse is going to look like, go to, go to Pakistan because it's already happening there. It's not a future condition, you know, and that changed my conception because you get so many mostly white, mostly middle-class like peak oil people who are talking about like, Oh, there's going to be this collapse. They're talking about collapse from their own standpoint, right. From their own perspective. Like yep. I, you know, you live in Iraq or Afghanistan, like the collapse is here. It's been here for a long time, you know, yep. And if you're an indigenous person in, in North America, the collapse actually was 400 years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. And now you're in a post-collapse state and there may be additional collapses and additional 
forms of degradation that are, you know, coming and are in progress now. But, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's the inevitable result of an empire. You know, the, the chickens always come home to roost. The violence that you have waged abroad, the violence that maintains a culture like we live in now, uh, that maintains this consumeristic, imperialistic culture, that violence has always been visited on, you know, others. And now that violence is, is coming home to roost in, in many different ways, you know, yeah. um, economically, uh, through vigilantes, through police violence, through the complete collapse of the institutions, even the last, you know, zemblages of democracy are sort of falling apart pretty rapidly, it appears. And, and we're moving rapidly towards, I mean, I was listening to an interview with Dar Jamail the other day, and he was like, the U.S. right now really reminds me of Iraq in 2003 when I first went over there. And the rise of these different sectarian forces and a lot of confusion about the different factions and the threat of a lot of violence along with some actual violence breaking out in different areas and the breakdown of civil institutions, the breakdown of the economy, just a complete climate of fear. You know, and I don't... I don't want those things. I don't revel in that by any means. Um, it's a really scary time to be alive right now, you know, and there's a lot of stress going on. I was just talking to some family last night and hearing about um, somebody in my extended family who's having a mental breakdown right now yeah. and, you know, just kind of losing it because yeah. you know, out of a job and, you know, kids, uh, kids depending on him and just, you know, I won't get into the details for privacy sake, Sure, but sure. just the amount of stress that people are living under sort of this, even the, the idea of the American dream for those who still held on to it is sort of crumbling very rapidly for people right now. And we can't change that. Like this is the trajectory that things are on. So I think then the question is how as organizers, do we react to the situation? How do we move forward? Which I, you know, you've had a lot of great stuff to say on that topic. I've uh, shit, man. I feel like every day surgeon, I mean, it helps that Serge and I live together because mm. you know, if, if, there was, I don't, I mean, how do I put this? I would have to do three interviews a day just to get the amount of questions and ideas off of my chest, just to like try to work yeah. through everything. I mean, it also, I mean, getting back to what we talked about before, it makes me want to um, reconnect in a different way. I need to find, if we make it past the pandemic, I mean, Serge and I have been having these conversations. It's almost like a little kid. If you're like, Hey, if we ever get to do this ever, but maybe not, <laughs> you know, like we're talking to each yeah. other and we're like, Hey, let's be serious here. Like, I'm not one of these people who thinks this is just going to go away. We've been really hawking like the world's top epidemiologists since this has started at like some of the best research institutes around the world. And every single one of them every day is like, we're learning new things every day. We don't know much. And anyone who's trying to make predictions is out of their minds. So like I've tried to stay away from all of that and just listen to these cats in this context. But man, I'll tell you what I, you know, it's so difficult. For years, I always argued against, and I think there was enough historical evidence to show that I like I always argued against this idea that we should accelerate the, or that if we accelerated things or if things got bad enough, 
that people would just sort of snap out of it and just resist. I don't think that that's how it happens, but I do think that there's this psychological thing that you kind of touched on that I do think is happening and a sociological thing where it's like people, the more we can get people to not go, man, I'm getting fucked by the system. And so if I could just get a good job, maybe someday I can make as much money as this person and also have a house and cars and all this stuff. But like, that things might get bad enough under in this context that there's like a, a switch for Americans to go, wait a minute. It's not just that I'm not going to have an opportunity to do this thing that never would have made me happy to begin with, or would have made me more depressed or even more anxious or more transactional, whatever it may be. But like that we need a whole different concept of what we value and how we want to live. And you know, I, I, the the concept of having different subjectivities is in mind because of having that conversation with Michael Hart where he was just, it was like a lot of talking about what kind, and, and I liked it because we don't talk about that as much on the left anymore. Like we don't, mm. it's so interesting to me how conservative the movement has become where, and I mean conservative in terms of ideas, like that we no longer talk about Big, big ideas. Like, how do we change the whole system or the fact that all of this is socially constructed? Like, these were the Mm -hmm. ideas on the left that got me interested. Like, when I -hmm. told Michael this, I told Sergio the other day, like, the Communist Manifesto excited me, not because it gave me, like, a dogmatic view of the world that I could rigidly follow at every step of the way, but, like, because it, it, like, cultivated this idea that, first of all, we have power as ordinary working class people. Number two that like all of this is socially constructed, which means it could be deconstructed. And that there's like, it's not just that we can have like a little change of the system, but that we can totally rethink the system, that we can abolish the state apparatus and have something different, that we can abolish capitalism and have something different. It's one yeah. of the, the reasons why I've never called myself a socialist, though I don't run around calling myself a communist neither because I... It, that's a conversation for a different day. But if someone asked and pressed me hard enough, I would say yes. And why? Because I like to think of some, I'd like to think that we could come up with something different than just corporate totalitarian control or just state. Like we're just going to have this, this, the same state that we've yeah. had, but just reconfigured for different purposes and that we're just going to provide yeah. material goods to everyone and anyone who wants them, uh, regardless of their impact on the natural world. I think there's a lot of like one in any case, I'll stop rambling, but you, you make me think about a lot of stuff and it makes me want to talk to you for hours, but it's like, I, I you know, there's gotta be, you made a video the other day, actually, I wanted to talk to you about this. This will be a good segue into getting more to some, some sort of straight political stuff. You made a video the other day and I really liked it. It was like, you know, you were basically telling people or asking people that like, we need to listen to each other more part of what we touched on earlier, but also that like, there's a way to bring these different movements and strains of the left together that like, we cannot repeat the same mistakes that we saw through the sixties and seventies, like the kind of sectarian fracturing that really destroyed movements. And yes, of course there was COINTELPRO and all the rest that we can't control. What we can control is how we treat each other, how we work together, how we build coalitions that we do have some control over. So I've always like, wanted to focus more on those internal organizational challenges than like this outside repression that we know is going to come that can often cause, I think, an extreme amount of unjustified paranoia, I think, at times. 
understanding the real threats though, not blowing them off. Um, but I wanted to get to that video and sort of what some of your thoughts were on this, because I've, I've found that what we've tried to do locally is to do that to the best of our ability, especially regionally. Now, locally, there's not too many progressive or left organizations, but regionally, really trying to find a way of like, how do you bring this group together with this group? How do you find different ways for people to work together? How do you create social and cultural opportunities for people to build the kind of relationships they need and the kind of trust and bonds you need? Um, mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you just want to talk a little bit about that or just riff on that, that, that kind of idea of bringing together, yeah. I know you're in, you know, you work with indigenous groups, you work with socialist groups, you work with deep green environmentalists in the United States. Like there's a lot of different people you work with. So I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's really hard. And I got to say, like I have, I've made more than my share of mistakes as an organizer over the years. And one of those mistakes <laughs> that I've made is the dogmatist mistake, which is so common, you know, where people, you know, I think how it has often happened for me is uh, because my ideas, and I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic here, <laughs> because my ideas are so important, I don't have time to listen to your ideas, right? Like that's what I see a lot of. And I think we need a lot more of like, oh, you've, I've got some really good ideas, yes, and you've got some really good ideas too. How can we synergistically make those work together? You know, understanding that we might not have uh, complete unity, but working together where we can. And even in this area, we've been starting to like formalize some of those relationships, you know, not necessarily with like public declarations or things like that, but sitting down with people and being like, okay, here's the things we agree on. Here's the things we disagree on. Uh, and here's some points of unity that we're going to work with in terms of how we're going to work together and how we're going to deal with any conflicts that may arise. And, you know, that's, I won't pretend that like we've got it figured out and we're all together over here because that's not at all the reality. There's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of horizontal hostility and throwing shade on other people and that type of stuff is pretty constant. Um, and I, I don't really have any patience for that anymore. I think because like you think about these really ideological people who get so set in their own way. And I've been, like I said, I've been one of those people. I would like to think I'm moving beyond that now, but I'm sure I still have a lot of work to do you think about those people, like those people are a very tiny fragment of the population, you know, and I don't necessarily think that those people are going to be the most effective vehicle for social change. And so my approach in many ways over the years has just been to like start ignoring large portions of the radical left. If I find their behavior too bad or, you know, too full of horizontal hostility or whatever, and just go work with the 99% of other people you know, and start connecting with those people who maybe aren't connected to those groups and aren't is interested in that type of drama. Um, but, you know, a, a couple of points that I wanted to make. Well, in that video, I guess one of the points that I made was just the importance of language and like learning people's language and learning where they're at, you know, and I think so often we get hung up on, I got to say things my way and I got to do it and follow my tradition exactly and follow my tendency. And I just think it's really important to study other people's 
movements with a really open mind and try and learn their language and the way that they approach things. And a couple examples that I gave were um, Marxism, which I haven't really been a part of the Marxist tradition, but I've been trying to study it and read a lot of foundational Marxist material and some of the more modern scholars and read history of different Marxist resistance movements and philosophy. And, and, you know, I won't pretend by any means to be an expert on that stuff, but trying to make a good faith effort to really dive into it and see what I really do agree with and what I really don't agree with, you know, but not to engage with it as sort of a, a stereotype or a facsimile or a set of ideas that I just think I understand what it is, but to actually go to the primary sources whether that's books or people or groups or whatever, and engage with them as a human being, you know, and find where the points of overlap are and where there are differences. Because so often when you do that, you find that the, the points of overlap are so much more important than, than the differences. Like it's really easy to fight with people online, you know, but then you get in a room with somebody and you start to sit down and you have the meal together and you have a human conversation. And it's like, okay, well we can work together on this. You know, you seem like a cool person. That's so often the case. And, the other example uh, that I gave in that video was around the permaculture movement. And, you know, just like with Marxism, I've got a lot of critique of the permaculture movement too. You know, it's been very white dominated, been very middle class and have had this sort of bubble thing going on of, you know, some wealthier people are just going to make some really nice gardens out in the woods and they're going to go do their own thing and not really engage with political struggles. And that's a stereotype, but there's some truth in it too, right? And, and so I've been trying to engage with it critically and communicate with some of those people, figure out who I can and can't work with. Because, you know, you were talking earlier about, you know, poor people not having access to the means of production. And I think that that's true. And I think one thing that I've been trying to offer to the permaculture movement or bring into their community is a revolutionary analysis and a revolutionary perspective. Because I think that permaculture and those types of food relocalization movements have a lot of potential. Like revolutions live or die on bread, right? And if we can link uh, food production and land with revolutionary struggle, then we've got something. I think, you know, we can't really, neither of them can really come first. Because I think if, if the revolution, if we focus entirely on the revolution, then there's going to be nothing to feed us, you know, and not many people are going to want to get involved in that struggle because there's no alternative vision that's being articulated and being developed in the real world, you know, like a real alternative for how we can live without going to the grocery store, without relying on the capitalist system for our everyday needs. And at the same time, if all we focus on is the permaculture and the local food and that type of stuff, and we don't put energy towards the revolutionary work, then not only are the vast majority of people going to remain trapped in the capitalist system with no hope of getting out, but that system is going to destroy the ecology of the entire planet and undermine the ability of, you know, local food production to even happen in the future. And, you know, this culture basically specializes in going into small scale sustainable communities and just destroying them and obliterating them and taking their land. Like that's, that's what empires do. Right. So the idea that we can have these little lifeboat communities that'll exist while capitalism continues and industrial civilization continues is a fantasy, I think. But when you bring those two together, then I think you're, 
starting to build something. Um, and yeah, I mean, this whole idea of building unity between movements, I think is really important. And, you know, I, I've actually done a bit of writing on this. I've, I haven't really talked about this, but I've kind of been working on a book on this topic and it's not anywhere near completion. So, you know, maybe we could chat about it sometime because I'm sure you'd have some good ideas, but I'm sort of trying to make an argument in this book that we need an entirely new revolutionary tradition that's designed for this particular moment that we find ourselves in because like Marxism and communism and that socialism, that whole tradition was born out of the industrial revolution. And it was just born out of a completely different context that isn't, there's still a lot of good in it and a lot that is completely accurate and right about it, but it's not really designed for this historical moment that we find ourselves in. I completely and agree. same with it. You can say the same thing about anarchism and you could say the same thing about environmentalism, about all these different traditions across the left. It's like they all have some wonderful components, but especially when people get dogmatic and they start saying what worked in the past will work again now, I find myself saying, no, we're in a completely different context with this convergence of all these different crises. Like we're seeing, you know, obviously the coronavirus is sort of the the most proximal one right now, but then we've got, you know, we've got the climate crisis, we've got the ecological crisis, we've got the breakdown of the last vestiges of civil society, we've got, uh, you know, looming economic crisis and capitalism sort of intensifying its exploitation of labor, we've got the decline of the U.S. empire and the potential rise in the future of China and, you know, these whole tectonic shifts happening in global politics, like, this is a completely different context than what's happened in the past. And I think we need to not be dogmatic, but really like bring together the best from all these different worlds, you know? And I don't, I don't pretend to like be the guru that can do that and can tell everyone, here's the new tradition and here's what we should do. But no I think will. that no like that is beginning. There are inklings that that is starting to organically happen. And I really want to encourage that and participate in that merging, you know, because I think that like any of these movements alone is completely inadequate to the scale of the problems that we're facing. But you start to get these movements together and start to build some unity around, you know, the best radical foundational principles and strategies from each of these different movements, then maybe you're talking about something that's got some real power to change things. And you know, I don't know what that's going to look like, but the other, I got a couple more notes I took here that I wanted to throw out because I could keep going on this for a long time too. I'm happy to keep this conversation going. I don't know when you got to leave or anything, but um, one of my uh, political mentors when I was younger is actually my sister's partner right now. And he said something to me last summer, we were hanging out in the backyard and he said to me, like movements need to have a thousand year vision. And I, that just struck me so much because I think so much of our organizing, as you said early on in this conversation, is reactive, right? So much is like the day-to-day -day crisis. And, and he was like, no, you need, and he was making this point critically, but he was saying like, you know, one of the reasons why the Nazis were so successful in their propaganda and their ideology was because they painted this picture of the, you know, the Third Reich right? And of course, you know, it's a brutal genocidal picture. We know what, what was actually behind that vision. 
but he was making the point that like people need something to believe in. They need something to work towards. And like stories like that are incredibly powerful to people. And I think that, you know, the left has been largely incapable of creating stories that people can believe in. And you've seen little hints of it here and there. A lot of stories that I think are incomplete or misleading or are just lies. Like uh, you probably saw that Green New Deal video that uh, Alexandro Ocasio-Cortez made with uh, The Intercept a while back. And it was I might sort of this hand-drawn, yeah, it was sort of this like hand-drawn, cartoonish video, and I heard you know, really it. beautiful, like yeah, green jobs and yeah. windmills going up everywhere, and corporations going down, and you know, it created this sort of beautiful vision. But you know, anyone who's seen Planet of the Humans or that sort of thing sort of knows it's this is a lie, really. It's it's there are elements of truth to it and elements of beauty to it, but it's, it's trying to sell people a bill of goods that's not real. And I think that we need to work towards creating visioning, you know, not just for like next year, but for like a decade, for a hundred years in the future, for 50 years, for a hundred years, you know, and that's hard in a world of climate catastrophe. Like a lot of people look into the future and just see, nothing, which may be the reality, you know, but I think that if we accept how bad things are and we accept the reality of what's happening, then the urge to lie to ourselves and each other falls away. And then we can start acting like adults and just really figure out what we're going to do and what we want, you know, and I can't pretend that like the future is going to look all wonderful and hunky dory. Like I think we're going to be going through some shit in the future, but I think the reason you have a vision is you have, so you have something to work towards, right? And you have goals to work towards and, you know, you probably won't reach all those goals, but you, you try, you have a vision, you have something to bring people together around, you know? And, um, you know, you talked about the communist manifesto right there, like a vision, a really powerful vision that spoke to people. And I, I just had a funny story to share about it, which I think you'll appreciate. So I was in fifth grade and for some reason, my friend brought the Communist Manifesto, like printed out, and we read it. You know, we're we're uh, what like eleven or something, and we're ta- we're scheming among ourselves about how you know the teachers are like the bourgeoisie, and we as students are <laughs> proletariat, and and we need to up rise up and overthrow them, and you know they're being paid to be here, and we're forced to be here against our will, and. You know, it was sort of a joke, but you, and you can imagine I had a lot of friends. I was very popular, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I feel like so, I am underqualified to interview every fucking person who's come on here. You remind me, who is the other person we were talking with, Serge? Bridget. And then someone else like fucking Chomsky mentioned something he was doing at seven years old or eight years old. And I'm like, holy fuck. Oh, somebody else, Cynthia. I mean, there was like several people who I've, who we've talked to since we've had the program that are like, yeah, when I was uh, 10, I was actually fighting like the local developer who was trying to destroy like the public park. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. I'm like, I was like, yeah, I'm amazed by all of you. I really am. Like all the folks who, uh, who've come on this program, who've been doing this stuff for a long time and like had this, it's such a different anyway. Yeah. It is a hilarious story though. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I, yeah, I feel yeah, so I feel so intimidated by everyone. I'm like, Jesus well, Christ. You like shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Because I read that in fifth grade and then I probably didn't read it again until the last couple of years, you know. So it's not right like on. I spent my teenage years like studying the Communist Manifesto <laughs> and you know, learning every revolutionary tradition. You know, I spent it playing video games and doing whatever okay. every teenager does. Okay, good. So I mean, yeah. That I, makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah, don't don't feel at all like you know. I'm just a I'm just a regular person for sure. But the final point that I wanted to make was um, there's this book that I actually didn't think it was very well written, but I thought the ideas in it were excellent. Um, and the reason, the only reason why I say I didn't think it was very well written was because it was very academic and dry and philosophical, which I'm not really that into. Um, I have trouble with that. And I think a lot of people do, but, uh, but I thought it was an interesting book. I read about half of it. It's called climate Leviathan. Mm. And, you know, it was basically making the argument that we are seeing different possibilities emerge for the response to climate change. And I think some of the ideas in this book are, maybe kind of already invalid just because events have progressed. You know, it came out in maybe 2017 or something like that. But it, it was making the argument that um, we have this sort of reactionary, earth-destroying tendency, you know, typified by like Trump and Bolsonaro and people like that who are basically just like, fuck the planet. We deny all the science, we're going to burn it all down, and we're going to exploit everyone as hard as we can in the meantime, right? And then you have climate leviathan, which is more like the mainstream Democratic Party and, you know, some of the progressive wing of, of, of the movement as well, that the, the, what they're talking about in this climate leviathan idea is they're referencing back to leviathan, the the book by Hobbes, right? Which was sort of, I, and this, this is sort of getting out of my depth here. We're talking about philosophy and stuff, but I think Hobbes was sort of making the argument that like the state is incredibly important. We need to invest power in the state and they will take care of the affairs of the people. And we just need to give up our power to the Leviathan, like the king or the rulers or whatever, and they'll take care of us, you know, and we should trust in that system. And so the, the authors of this book, I think Joel Wainwright is one of them, were making the argument that we're seeing that tendency in the environmental movement with this huge emphasis on government action, on, uh, on sort of reifying the power of the capitalist state complex as the only entity that can deal with the climate crisis. And, you know, with the... Uh, green capitalism and green technology and so on, all tying together into this climate leviathan and telling people the only way we can get through this crisis is if you put your trust and your power into the state and into these, you know, green technology corporations and they will take care of it for you. And so they were contrasting that with two alternatives, one of which was climate Mao. And they were talking about how China is responding to the climate crisis through a lot more centralization, a lot more coordinated state controlled uh, response. 
that's not really in the capitalist market, although I'm sure we could, people could have arguments about that. I'm not really interested in those arguments too much myself. But, um, but the, the last alternative that they talked about was, I think they called it Climate X or something. And basically the idea was that they left it kind of unformed. But what they were talking about was like grassroots people's movements to address climate change, to address the ecological crisis that do not uh, dovetail into authoritarianism, into capitalism, into, you know, reinforcing the power of the state at the expense of people's autonomy and democratic control of their own lives and their communities. And they... I think this is just a sort of an example of that vision that we need. Like it's, we see these movements, these grassroots movements in so many places, whether it's Standing Rock or the Occupy movement or, you know, the latest uprising and starting in Minneapolis, Black Lives Matter, all these different movements. And you, you know, you actually mentioned that, uh, that new book assembly the other day, I picked up a copy and I haven't gotten into it at all. But I think that that book, I believe, is sort of diving into the same questions, like how do these movements that are more or less leaderless and somewhat organic in their emergence become organized and start to actually build power without like becoming uh, centralized and bureaucratic and authoritarian in their own ways? Yep. Well, I don't, I don't know what you think. That was kind of... A, no, 100%, man. It's one drop. of the reasons why I really appreciate you know, your work, it's one of the reasons why, and it's like anybody else. I, there's this weird thing that I, I don't know where this has been picked up in left culture or how much of this seeps over from like neoliberal sort of pop culture or cancel culture, or all this kind of stuff. But like, there's a weird thing that I've noticed on the left where like people try to pigeonhole you really quickly. Like people really like, they, they kind of like see you and they're like, okay, so who are you with? Like I've had, the, I mm. mentioned this to Jerry, uh, I keep wanting to call him Jared, probably because I miss my buddy Jared. I haven't seen him in a while. Um, but, you know, yeah. I, I've said this to Derek in the past where it's like, like people, um, you know, they'll be like, why do you uh, give Derek Jensen a platform or why do you go on his platform or do you yeah. agree with every, and I'm like, look, like, I mean, the, the reality is I think I probably do agree with most of where uh, Derek is coming from. Um, but it's like, man, like if someone were to ask me maybe the top three thinkers or writers who've made me rethink the way that I interact or deal with or view the world, he would be right up there yeah. with Chomsky. Mm -hmm. Maybe, um, I'd have to think about who the third would be, you know? I mean, I particularly enjoy, uh, Arundhati Roy's work. Mm -hmm. She's yeah, made yeah. me think more about those roots of like, why I got involved with this at the, in the first place, like those revolutionary roots of love, which I don't think it's a coincidence that both Derek and Arundhati talk about that concept. Something I think something else we should talk more about. It's like love yeah. and like why we actually do this. Like it, I don't do this because I'm just angry at everyone. Like I do this because I yeah. genuinely love life. I love like, I love being able to live in peace. Like I don't want to live in war. Mm -hmm. Like I love, uh, you know, uh, the world. And I think that that's like such yeah, a, we, we've gone way off track. I mean, one of the, it's again, and one other, one of the reasons why I really like 
what you and Derek and others do. You know, Saba, all the people that I've met. It's so interesting, too, because there's been such controversy over uh, DGR over the years, which I find a lot of it just trumped up weird internet bullshit. But I also think, I told Derek, you know, I find it so interesting because some of the most thoughtful, uh, nice, socially, like, comfortable people to be around have been the people that I've met through DGR. Like of all the people I've met on the left. I mean, I've met crazy fucking Maoists who've said stuff to me within 10 minutes where I'm like, Oh my God, like, how are we even going to continue this conversation? (laughs) Like, you know, I've been to like (laughs) different socialist conferences and other places where people have like weird, like things that they do. Like I've been to a socialist conference. I'm going to probably get shit for this, but I've been to a socialist conference where people make, snake noises at each other when they don't like what someone says they do like a hissing thing and i'm like max i'm talking i'm well the group doesn't exist anymore so i could talk all the shit i want uh no i'm just (laughs) um they used to have a socialist conference in chicago the iso but like you would be in a room with hundreds hundreds of people and if there was a speaker saying something they didn't like they used to go like a snake noise and it was this i just remember being in the room like Wow. I'm like, I don't want to be in a cult. Like, I don't want to be, like, leaving, like, yeah. weird, like, I don't, I, anyway, there's so much I would like to say about what, what you're talking about. And I'm I'm all over the place because you you make me think yeah. about, uh, yeah, all of those things where it's like, I mean, you don't have to agree with everything Hart and Negri say. It's like, they're bringing mm-hmm. up really important yeah. questions. Hierarchy versus verticalism. It's not an either or. I like people who also don't, who like really smash dichotomies. And part of what I think you'll notice throughout the book, now some of it gets heavy, heavy, deep Marxist philosophy. Some of it, you you know, some of it, you might just not find that useful, but they're asking really important questions. So even if you read a book like that and say 50% of it makes you think and is very useful, like- That's a good use of your time. You get, like a few, you get a few ideas out of it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a good use of your time and all of the same questions that we're asking. Like, it's not always, we don't always need hierarchies, but in some situations, in some contexts, in some places, there probably will have to be some kind of hierarchical <laughs> division of labor in certain contexts. Like, we yeah. don't want horizontalism for the sake of horizontalism, but in some cases, like, this is how movements are emerging what does leadership look like? It's not a case of either no leadership or leadership, like different kinds of leadership. How do we develop those different kinds of leadership in the service of what, you know, like anybody who's asking those kinds of questions, like I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. And the last thing I'll say, because we're coming up to two hours. So what I'll say is we should definitely do this again, because I would like to do another two hours with you. And we can get even more into like the nitty gritty of like, I wanted to pick your brain on uh, bright green lies. I wanted mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about some of the photography you do. I wanted to talk about also, um, some of the current efforts that you're involved in. I also mm-hmm. wanted to just talk about the people and things you've read over the years that have given you a different appreciation and understanding for the earth, for ecosystems, for ecology, the natural world. Cause there's a lot of us, cool. I think in the cities who, you know, I think we do want to learn more. And I think if more people in cities and in urban and suburban environments understood the complexities involved in like how the natural world works, I think, yeah, there's one way, like you said, sort of go immerse yourself in this. But I think there's also another way to learn. And that's probably the best way. But I do think there's another way for people who might be stuck in certain areas to like yeah, think about that, you know? Um, yeah. 
but yeah, I guess the la- the how would I end this to get you to? It, it seems to me that one of the like one of the number one things I've learned over the years is that there's a ton of people with really good critiques who've made me think a lot over the years. Uh, Derek's one of those people. I mean, we mentioned a bunch of people, but that this development of something new and you're getting to it with your idea for the book that you're working on now, I think, which is it, probably in a much more practical, useful way, the same thing that Hart and Negri, other people are trying to get to. But that's to really think this, like there, we have to think through what we mean by revolution. We have to think through what the vision is. We have to think through our mm-hmm. methods and our approaches and the kind of effort, discipline, resources, capacity, organizational, institutional knowledge and 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 uh, power that it's going to take to make those things happen. Mm-hmm. And it seems clear to me that no one has an answer. That like we can talk with you mentioned the Philippines. We also have uh, friends who work with the KMU in the Philippines, sort of like their militant trade. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but yeah. Um, we hear things from them. We hear things from the Zapatistas. We hear things from Rajova. I mean, there's all kinds of places where I, I look and I go, then we might see a, a labor movement somewhere. You know, we might see farmers in India rising up. And I see all these different things and it's like, and listen to what their organizers, activists, and the, and the writers and intellectuals, you know, organic intellectuals of those movements, I think, are saying. And it doesn't seem clear to me, number one, that we're going to have some kind of a universal in fact, I think it's absurd to assume that we're going to have a universal approach for this. Now, I do yeah. think yeah. that there will have to be a tremendous amount of international cooperation and solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, because, And we're put in this bind now, I think, particularly because we have such an interconnected uh, global economy. So in other words, if we have that revolution in the United States, what other places would be impacted if our revolution in the United States, say it was happening faster now i'm thinking optimistically but let's say this is happening faster in the united states than it is uh let's say in south america Mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of relationships that already exist that i think would have to be navigated to try and avoid um the worst devastation or devastating impacts of what that kind of a collapse slash revolution would kind of look like those are the kind of things that i'm thinking about i mean it's not like yeah. It doesn't seem clear to me that there's anyone who has or any movement that has the answer, but that we're going to yeah. have to pick and choose. And we're going to have to, one of the things I like about what Hart and Negri were saying, especially when we got to talk with Michael, and that is um, they're trying to be creative. They're trying to tell people like, we have mm-hmm. to experiment. Yeah. And that's something that has driven me nuts about, you know, spending time on the left where people are, I think, you know, either setting up false dichotomies or looking for, really easy answers or dogmatic uh, responses to these highly complex problems I think that we face and challenges that we face. And I like anyone who's trying to really think this through and openly like asking questions where like I could, like I told you earlier, I could sit here. We almost did two hours. I mean, I probably talked for about 30 of them. Um, But that's because I know you a little better than some of the other guests on the program. And plus I just feel comfortable rapping with you. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Great. But I'll tell you what, I, uh, yeah, I mean, you could do this every day with activists all over the world in different continents and countries and still not be able to come away by the end of a year with like a, okay, yeah. this is what it is. It's like, man, yeah, is that how you view this too? Like, is this for you also this sense yeah. of like, we're always growing, we're always learning. I'm not trying to come up with one answer for everyone. Like I'm 
I, I, one of the reasons I appreciate you is because I feel like you approach it in the same way. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, just, just thinking about how big the world is, you know, and how many different, like being in the Philippines recently, you know, I've spent some time in a few different places around the world and the contexts are so different. And to imagine that the same ideas will work everywhere is, is, is silly, I think really. And it's, it's arrogant. And I think we need to, we need to be really flexible, you know, and we need to adapt to the situations. But I think we also need to work towards building unity around fundamental principles, around fundamental goals, around like the general direction that we're pushing in, you know, and I think that we are seeing some of that start to happen. You know, like I think the Standing Rock movement was incredibly important. You know, we just saw a potential, uh, you know, we just saw a shutdown ordered by the court on the pipeline uh, today or yesterday, this morning, I think. But, um, we saw as a result of that, like a shift in the culture across, across the U.S. and internationally. Like, so many people were watching what was happening there. And we saw a, a relatively subtle but extremely important shift take place from environmentalism, which had been dominant for the past decade or so, which is always so human-centric, to a little bit more of a humble approach that was that was because of the indigenous leaders of that movement bringing their own tradition, their own background, their own history to the struggle and putting that front and center, you know, and everybody sort of agreeing that that was the most important thing about that movement was for it to be done in a certain way, for it to reflect certain values because of whose land that was on, because of what was at stake, you know? And I think that, and I think similarly, like with this uprising against police brutality, we're seeing some reforms, we're seeing some small victories and some legitimate things happening, as well as like this big rise in vigilante violence. You know, one of the young women struck by the car in Seattle the other night just died. I was like, you probably heard, you know, I don't know how many people that makes now who've been killed by white supremacists over the past month and a half or two months. But, you know, it's, it's what, two dozen, three dozen at or least. more at this point? Yeah, at least. And, um, but, you know, that has shifted the culture of the entire resistance. Like that has shifted everyone in a more radical direction. And not everyone is on the same page, but like people who weren't thinking at all about radical ideas are now at least thinking about them a little bit. And the people who were really on board with the radical ideas already are now, many of them are now revolutionaries. And they're now just like, well, this is what it's going to take to get this done. You know, so we're seeing this process happen organically. And I think that, you know, a lot of people get depressed. I was just reading about the stages of grief earlier today, you know, and it's like um, denial, anger. Uh, what's the third one? I forget. Uh, it's not uh, negotiating, right? Is the fourth negotiation? Oh, yeah. Bar- denial, bargaining. anger, bargaining, depression, yep. and then acceptance, right? Yeah. And yep. I think that a lot of people, like d- denial and anger just typifies, you know, Trump and the ruling class and the far right and, and bargaining to me typifies like the liberal, the liberal worldview and the progressives who are just like, we can have green energy and electric cars and you have our cake too. And, you know, we can, uh, 
we can reform the police and they'll get rid of the violence. And they just sort of want things to continue the same, but they want to bargain a little bit, you know, and get a few reforms. And then I think so many people are just stuck in a state of depression. And, uh, you know, it's legitimate. It's real. I feel that myself. I think we all do. Anyone who grapples with this stuff feels it at times. But, you know, I think we also need to move past that because depression in, a se- in, in the political sense can just become a, a self-serving emotion. It's about yourself, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't, we don't really have time for that anymore, you know, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to demean or throw shade. I have a lot of friends and family and, you know, some of the people I love most in the world who suffer from depression. And I'm not saying anything about that. What I'm saying is that, you know, I think politically we can't get stuck in depression. We need to move to step five, which is acceptance, right? And we need to accept where we're at and what's happening. And I was just watching a training earlier today from uh, Ajamu Umi, who's with the All African People's Revolutionary Party, I think is what it's called. And he was talking about doing security and de-escalation at uh, trainings and events in rural Oregon communities where you'll get militia people and white supremacists and folks coming out to disrupt the event or, you know, really upset about what's going on. And he's talking about, you know, to be effective in that sort of security de-escalation role, you have to see the humanity in other people and you have to understand where they're coming from. And you have to have, you know, the, like Che, he mentioned Che talking about, you know, a revolutionary is guided by love ultimately. Right. And he was saying like, you have to have, some level of faith in people's ability to change. And that doesn't mean that if somebody comes in, you know, waving their gun around and spouting racial epithets or whatever, you, you see them as a human being and you work with them, whatever, you know, he's, you know, there are certain cases of course, in which you just got to put in a stop to a situation or you got to fight somebody or you got to do what you got to do. Right. But he's saying like, we need to, in politics, we need to have a level of faith in people. And, you know, I, the reason why I'm an organizer is because at some level, I believe in people. I believe in that people have the ability to make good decisions and to do correct things. You know, and <laughs> I can go back to like being in high school and having crazy house parties and I'm the one cleaning up after everyone else because they're, you know, not, because uh, they're too hungover and they're, you know, they don't have their shit together enough. But I'm thinking about like whose house it is and the need to like, try not to get them in a huge amount of trouble with their parents or something. Right. You know, so, so I can certainly relate to the fact that like most people in many circumstances are not responsible and are not living up to like adult, adult values and adult responsibilities. But I don't know. I still have, I have faith in people and I have faith that we can change. And I think that there are just so many examples throughout history of people doing the right thing, coming together as individuals and as communities and organizing and changing, changing their thoughts, changing their culture, changing the way they live, you know, and my grandma was a huge influence on me. And, um, you know, she lived to be, I think, 94, 93. She died back in, uh, it was when the Occupy movement was going on. So it was that 2013, 12, 12. Yeah. Yeah. I think she died in 2012. And one of the things that she said a couple of years before she died was she was an artist. She made some incredible art. I don't know if you can see this painting right here, but that was her. Um, 
Oh, right she, on. Uh, yeah, she, um, one of the things she said was, I believe in art and I believe in people. Somebody, somebody asked her, like, what do you believe in? Because she would, she was, you know, she had crazy fashion and would wear like a Christian cross and a Buddhist symbol and, you know, all kinds of different things. And somebody was like, what do you believe in? And she said, I believe in art and I believe in people. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm still figuring out what that means. I think there's a lot there. But I think if you live to be that age and you're an artist and you're committed to social change and you're a good human being, like she was a fundamentally really good person, you know, somebody who really cared about other people and, and helped people a lot throughout her life in different ways. And um, she said that she said that she said, I believe in art and I believe in people. And, you know, I think art, the term art, I think people, you know, um, pigeonhole that into a small concept, you know, but I think there's art in so much, you know, they're just another way to say it maybe would be, I believe in beauty. Um, and, uh, and she said, I believe in people. And I guess I believe in people at some level too. And I'm constantly disappointed by people, but, uh, I'm also constantly impressed and amazed by people. You know, there are so many amazing human beings all over this world and you're one of them Vince so thanks so much for all your work over the years it's you've been an inspiration you've been an inspiration to me for real for ever since I first came across your work so I really I really appreciate everything that you do and your uh your show and uh everything that you write I and the organizing work that you do I it it I have looked uh looked to you as one of the teachers who I've learned a lot from over the years so Thank you. Oh. Your, your work is not going unnoticed. Well, thank you. You make me, uh, yeah, you make me blush. Let's just spend the last part of the interview just complimenting each other for like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I appreciate it, man. I really do. And I think there's so many people out there doing, so, I mean, to your point, and you know what yeah. you're getting at. I, we just talked with, I almost wish that we could have had the conversation with Michael and you. It would have been even more interesting. Two mm. really interesting points that he made. One was about Standing Rock and the relationship to the land. I mean, the point he made was that why that was such a revolutionary idea was because for the first time in a long time, it wasn't, this is our oil and we're going to do what we want with it. It was, perhaps this is no one's and no, and who actually who owns this? Nobody owns this, but that it needs to be properly like managed or related to totally different Mm -hmm. concept in relationship to private property. He made that point. Um, I do think you probably found your uh, the title for your book. I believe in art and uh, people. That might be the mm. title for your book on uh, <laughs> building a new movement. That I'm I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an awesome concept. And uh, you're getting to the roots. The last thing I'll say is that you're getting to the roots of where the left comes from to begin with. I mean, one of the things I found very discouraging, and I've fallen into this over the years. I've actually probably said different things to Derek and and Lear and others over the years that I probably would rethink now, probably at times when I was just, you know, you get so frustrated, you get so beat down, you get so cynical sometimes. And and it's important to beat those, those feelings back. But I think what you're getting to and what Michael and and Tony are getting to in their book and something that Sergio and I try and remind ourselves of all the time. And that is the roots of the left are based philosophically in the idea that human beings are inherently creative, that we're inherently compassionate, Uh, beings that are able to collectively cooperate with each other that 
indeed it is the Hobbeses of the world and the Adam Smiths of the world and the others who think that human beings are these sort of, you know, quote unquote, wild animals to be tamed, uh, you know, that the rabble needs to be brought in line. And these are highly um, regressive ideas about, you know, human beings. And I I say that as someone who is fully aware of the sort of horrors and brutality that human beings can unleash on each other. But I think we have to understand where that comes from. You know, Sergio was just listening to a podcast the other day. This gentleman was bringing up like, the archaeological evidence that there had not been like major damage to human uh, bones, homo sapiens and others over the years from like massive wars and stuff that this is only found in like from whatever period it was from 10,000 years up um, Sergio saying right now. So like, you know, those are things it's so important for us to talk about these things. Sometimes like we have to go beyond Mm -hmm. it's counterintuitive, but I think in order to have hope, sometimes you have to come to the conclusion that there might not be any hope. And I think sometimes to go beyond the roots of like where the left comes from or what we consider the left, I think we have to sometimes revisit those roots, maybe Mm. rethink them, uh, Mm. see how they've been misinterpreted or interpreted, however, but then to move past them, I think sometimes you have to revisit them. Anyway, that's my bit of wisdom for the end of this conversation. I really appreciate you, man. I really do. And I really, I think you're just like one of the most thoughtful cats out there and uh, let's do this again. We'll put I this out you. as we'll just put this out as one two hour thing as like a part one, cool. and then part two we'll get into all kinds of other stuff. If that's sounds okay great, with yes. you, yeah, sounds great. Cool, man. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as three dollars a month. The link is available at our website parkmedia.org that's p-a-r-c media.org make sure to subscribe to our youtube channel below also you could find us on instagram at park media facebook at politics art roots culture and you could find me on twitter at vince emanuele